Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to Speaking Out for the Blind. I'm Brian McCallan. According to WRKF Radio in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a blind man by the name of David L. Fauché loves books. David loves reading books more than anything else. He recently put his love of books into the writing of his own story. This story is a diary of the author's life, but it's a diary that everyone is allowed to read. According to his website, dldbooks.com, Slash David Fauché, the author talks about the music he likes, TV shows that David loved when he could see, history and hobbies, recipes and restaurants, and friends. The book is called Across Two Novembers, A Year in the Life of a Blind Bibliophile. David joins us to talk about the book and his life. Welcome to the show, David. Hello, Brian, and thank you for asking me to come on. It's a pleasure having you here, too. David, how did you become blind? You mentioned in a WRKF radio interview that it occurred after you were born with an X-related chromosome disorder, causing you to have cataracts. That's basically correct. We learned in the 1980s, while I was a patient at the Cullen Eye Institute in Houston, that this was traced to an X-related chromosome disorder. So I had surgery. And everything was going relatively well. I did see about 20 over 400. I attended a residential blind school. It was the typical practice of the time. Though I understand mainstreaming is much more widespread now. And everything went well until my early teens when I developed what I was told was secondary glaucoma. Again, they treated it using the surgical methods of the time which did not include lasers. There was something, I believe, a trabeculectomy or an iridectomy. Anyway, what happened, they could never control the pressure as they wanted, and it gradually leached away my remaining vision, so that by the time I was in my late teens, I think I had barely light perception, which I don't really have now, except on very good days. Except on very good days, okay. Sunny days, yes. Sunny days. I was looking at your website. It says that you've lived in Louisiana all your life and that you currently live in Lafayette. You went to Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge and you earned both your Bachelor of Arts in English and your Master of Library in Information Science. How did you speak out to earn these degrees? I assumed I would go to college after high school. Several of the people that was in my class did. You know, we, we just knew we would be going to college. We were never sure quite what we might be majoring in. And so the Louisiana Rehabilitation Services covered the tuition costs. My parents picked up the dorm costs and the meal ticket costs, and I also was awarded several scholarships, which helped with the part of it that my parents picked up. So that basically explains the undergraduate degree. It was sort of what I was expected to do. I was a class valedictorian in high school, had been first place winner at a state literary rally in American history. It was just sort of assumed I would definitely go do the college thing. In regarding 
the graduate degree, the master's in library and information science, I had actually never expected to get a master's. What had happened was that a job I was doing working half-time as a Braille, or rather an adaptive skills instructor, had not developed into the full-time work that it had been suggested it would be for me. I was told when I was hired in December of 1994 that it would turn into a full-time job by that summer of 1995. It never happened. By September of 1996, I was very disenchanted had felt that I was not meeting the goals I had set for my career, found the work environment unproductive, and decided to try to go back to school. It was the time when the Internet was really hot, it was really taking off, and every other word was something about the information superhighway or about links and the graphical interface for the World Wide Web. Tim Berners-Lee was on everybody's mind at that time, the British scientist who developed the hypertext protocol that undergirds the World Wide Web. Anyway, I approached the Louisiana Rehabilitation Services again. They were at first reluctant to consider my wanting to go back to school, but because the job I was in and had been in for over 20 months had never developed full-time, they did consider and did agree that they would cover the cost of the in-state tuition for library school. And luckily, Louisiana does have a library school at LSU, which is ALA accredited, or ALA being the American Library Association, and its accreditation is considered a must because you won't be hired by any self-respecting library if you don't have a degree from an ALA accredited university. There are, last I heard, there were over 50. Texas has three. We have one. Some states have none. Well, that, that's pretty small. So you've worked as a medical transcriptionist and a Braille instructor. Explain your roles in these two jobs. A medical transcriptionist, as you may deduce from its title, is a person who listens to audio output produced by a doctor or other medical professional regarding any type of medical exam or procedure. It is your job to translate that into a document. And at that time, there was no speech recognition, which I understand is starting to nibble away at this profession. And so I worked in the early 1990s doing the job of medical transcriptionist at a clinic in New Orleans and worked for three doctors. So I basically used WordPerfect. I believe it was WordPerfect 4.2, so we're going back to the dark ages now. I believe the screen reader was some horror called Screen Talk. ASAP had not yet come out, I would listen on a dictaphone and translate what I heard into appropriate text. I did that for a while and then found that I was having trouble staying awake. I was having some health issues with that job because you're basically sitting at a desk from 8 to 12 and from 1 to 5 and you're basically typing and that's what you're basically doing. You're not moving around, you're not ever interacting with anybody, you're just machine that's typing. Now, the Braille instructor job came about because of a, fr a priest who had been at the church where my parents attended. He had mentioned to them that there was a part-time job that had come open at the diocese in Lafayette. I applied and got it, 
And at that same time, I learned that there was a Braille proofreading program offered by the Library of Congress, and I thought it would be a good credential to have since my background was not in education. My college background is in English, in English with a Spanish minor. And so I thought that I'd better have a credential that would make me a little more employable and secure. So I did work on the Braille proofreading course through the National Library Service, and later I did also take the literary competency test that came out in the fall of 1994 and added those two credentials to my resume. I worked at the diocesan office. It was the Deaf Action Center, and you might wonder why a deaf person learns Braille. Well, some of the people here are deaf-blind. Louisiana has one of the highest incidences of Usher syndrome. What usually happens is a person is born deaf and exists in the deaf culture, and in their teens or 20s, they develop RP, and so they start losing vision. And so they need Braille because they need another way to communicate. So I worked with that client base. That was definitely interesting. It's nothing I had ever planned I would be doing, but it was certainly an interesting experience, and it was an interesting look at the deaf culture, which is very unique and has its own social mores and just its own other constructions. So I did that for a while, and then I moved over to a different rehab center and worked as a thinking it would be full-time as a Braille instructor there, but that one didn't actually turn out. So there were two different Braille jobs. One was very part-time through the dioceses, and I left that one to pick up the one at the training center, which ended up not turning out as I had hoped. Then a friend encouraged you to start an audio block. What was this block? It was called Blind Chance. In fact, it's still archived on the Internet. I do reference it in my book, at the end of each chapter, including a couple of items to give you a sense of what material I was including on the blog. In 2004, I started this blog. It was in May at the behest of author and journalist David Rothman, whom I had originally heard on a Jimbo Hannon broadcast in 1996. I emailed. I happened to have just gotten onto CompuServe and So we emailed for a while. We stayed friends. I did actually meet him in 1996. In the fall, I had attended the collection development committee that the National Library Service ran, where you would represent your region. I represented the southern region in the NLS program, and you gave input into what you wanted to see in the collection. That was the year the Chafee Amendment passed. Everybody was amazingly excited, and that was the year they came out with those one-volume foldable Velcro Braille mailers, which they were very excited about. Anyway, Mr. Rothman and I had maintained our connection through email mostly and sometimes by phone. And when he found out this company offered a telephone service whereby you would call a number and you could record up to five minutes and it would be posted on a website, he thought I should give it a try. There had not been many audio blogs then, and I'm not sure there were any done by a blind person. I'm either the first or one of the very first people to have done an audio blog, not a text blog, but an audio blog that was by a blind person that discussed issues related to blindness. I did that from May of 2004 to March of 2009. 
I focused on various. When you can do it, it must be truly amazing to have a niche with a blog and be paid and have a nice career that way. I think the blogosphere now is too overloaded, though I don't know how anyone distinguishes themselves. Now it's like what I mentioned in my book. It's like someone being looking for a firefly against a supernova explosion. You just won't see it. it. There's just so many, so much out there now in the blogosphere. I'm very grateful that Mr. Rothman encouraged me to do it, just as I'm very grateful he got me into doing a book review gig for Library Journal. It was the audiobooks, and since 2006, I've reviewed over 80 audiobooks for them. It's been an interesting experience, and it has... um given me an interesting view of lots of different audio book narrators, some that NLS doesn't have, and even to read some books that NLS never included in their collection. Books, you say? We're going now into publishing your own book. I understand that you don't watch much movies and TV, and you really enjoy reading books. But your own book that you wrote, it's called Across Two Novembers, a Year in the Life of a Blind Bibliophile. Amazon says that it's a book about your history and hobbies, the music you enjoy, the schools you've gone to, the physical problems that challenged you, and books, books, books. Amazon and your website say that Across Two Novembers is, quote, an astonishing work of erudition and remembrance. End quote. What was your inspiration for writing Across Two Novembers? I think for as long as I can remember, I've wanted to write something, to leave something behind. And when, in November of 2013, Dr. Kathy Schneider asked me to review her book, Occupying Aging, which itself was a journal covering 2012, and covering how she has coped with being retired as a blind woman in her Wisconsin hometown, I thought, let me look at this book. I did, and I realized I could probably write something not exactly like this, but I could do a journal, and maybe I could publish it, and I would possibly add my voice to the ever-growing field of books written by blind people dealing with blindness, because I think the more voices we hear, the better we are, to show the range of existence that we, unfortunately, all are not supermen, though I wish I were those get paid much better to do speaking engagements. But we're not all supermen or superwomen, unfortunately. And I wanted to add my voice, particularly as somebody with a secondary challenge, namely fibromyalgia syndrome, because I don't feel that blind people with secondary challenges have been really addressed well by the major consumer organizations. I think it's a niche that should be addressed, possibly. And I wanted to add my voice to it, so I dove in, started my journal on November 16th of 2013, figuring if I waited to January 1st of 2014, I would probably by that time have decided, oh, this is crazy, nobody will care, I'll just stop it, and I would have been my own worst enemy. So I dove in right at that time and started journaling. And that first entry in the book is Saturday, November 16th, 2013, Spoon Theory. That's the title. Starts with a date and then says spoon theory. Exactly. Why do you call it spoon theory? Spoon theory is something written by Christine Man- Marandino. Her 
idea was to try to explain her situation. I believe she had lupus. She had a, in other words, she had a chronic autoimmune condition. She wasn't blind to my knowledge, but she had difficulty with people wanting to know why she might appear well, and they might have seen her shopping on Monday, and when they asked her to go eat lunch with them on Wednesday, she had to decline. She explained that her energy reserves are very limited. She used the idea of a handful of serving spoons to act as a sort of um, mechanism whereby she could score her energy reserves so that whenever she did something, when she got out of bed and washed her hair, that cost her a spoon. If she fixed breakfast, that cost her a spoon. If she had to take her daughter to school, that cost her another spoon. And maybe she only had five spoons that day, and she still needed to do several things. So she would have to budget her um, energy and her resources accordingly. She wouldn't have resources to maybe spend on a lunch or to go shopping with her girlfriends or to go ride around and look at fall leaves or what have you. So. I called it that to make people aware of what they might see in my journal, why some days would be very skimpy, why some days might be very busy and very active, and what it was like to live like that. Another entry, Tuesday, November 19th, 2013, Shopping and Volunteers. What was this entry about? I understand it was about working with two people from a philanthropic organization called Love Incorporated. It's exactly. I have had two shopping volunteers. Volunteer A lasted from May of 2011 to about May of 2012. He was a very gregarious person. He had retired. His wife was finishing up a year, her last year of teaching. She taught middle school, gifted enrichment. My, that volunteer and I would go shopping roughly once or twice a month. We often ate out at a restaurant. He liked to eat possibly more even than I did, if that's possible. And we had a really nice time. I got to meet his wife. In fact, I even spoke to her class one day concerning blindness. I did the talk on Braille, the one most of us have given at least at one point in our life, the Braille, the cane, the talking clock, a few books, the digital player, you know, the, the basically the work. And the kids were very receptive, very well behaved. When he and his wife decided that after she retired, which she did at the end of May of 2012, they would buy an RV and travel the country. I knew I needed to get a vo another volunteer, and I got one the next month. Very nice guy, a retired cameraman for KATC Channel 3 News, a very interesting person who's done missionary work in Ukraine and Guatemala. Real quickly, let's get into one of your other entries, which is about spending the holidays with your family on both Christmas Eve and Day in 2013. Describe your experience spending Christmas with your family as a blind man. Holidays should always be spent with a family, whether it be your biological one or a family composed of people in your urban tribe. I was very fortunate, and still am, that I have a biological family with which to spend major holidays. Spending the holiday season, namely Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, with family usually involves a gift exchange on Christmas Eve after we've all gone to church. We tend to gather at my younger brother's home, and the food is usually finger food for that evening, and everyone exchanges gifts. It's always interesting. Sometimes I'm a little bit 
baffled because I hear, ooh, what did you get? Ooh, that looks good. And I'm thinking, what looks good? Who got what? I'm wishing that I could have built-in audio description. Christmas Day is usually usually means a morning mass for the people who did not go the previous evening and a nice Christmas lunch, which is usually, though not always, you know, baked turkey or ham, cornbread dressing, green beans prepared some sort of way, makshu, which I mentioned in the book, it's smothered corn. And so we have a big lunch and then people sometimes visit or play cards. Sometimes if my brother and my youngest brother and his wife needed to get back to town, they we would all leave that evening. We my parents live an hour south of where I do. Okay. How can our listeners buy the book? The book's available on Amazon as either an ebook or a paperback. It is also available for those blind persons with Bookshare.org access as a downloadable file. I made it that way because I did want blind people to have access to it. And lastly, anyone who has Alexa or Internet access can instruct their Echo to take them to WRBH, which is a radio station, a main channel FM in New Orleans, Louisiana, that is also broadcast on the Internet. It is airing my book from 1.30 to 2 o'clock Central Daylight Savings Time, Monday through Friday, into April. All right. David, thank you so much for speaking out and sharing with us a personal part of your life. I know that some of our listeners are going to relate to your life experiences as a blind person. Thanks so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure, and any listener who wishes to communicate with me directly is welcome to email scopist65 at gmail.com. That's scopist65 at gmail.com. For those who are are curious, a scopist is a type of legal editor. I discuss that in my book as well. And thank you. It was very nice to be um, included today. You're very welcome, David. And before we go, I welcome your comments on this program, listeners. Just visit and like me on Facebook at Speaking Out for the Blind, or follow me on Twitter at Speak Out Blind or Speak Out for the Blind. You can also check out my website, that's speakingoutfortheblind.weebly.com. More information on today's show is posted there. Just look under the list of episodes and show news tab. My new email address is speakout at acbradio.org, and my show archive is at acbradio.org slash speaking-out-for-sa-blind. Please note that there is a link located at the top half of the page and below the heading that says Home Speaking Out for the Blind, where you can subscribe to the podcast feed and listen to Speaking Out for the Blind shows ranging from episode 94 to the present. That's all for this edition of Speaking Out for the Blind. Thanks for listening, and remember to speak out. Here at ACB Radio Mainstream, we are always working to improve the quality of our programming. If you have any feedback about anything you have heard here on ACB Radio Mainstream, please let us know by sending an email to support at acbradio.org. That's support at acbradio.org. You are listening to ACB Radio Mainstream, connecting the blind community. Tired of the same old survival reality shows that aren't 
too real? Then join me, Brian McCallan, on Speaking Out for the Blind. I interview real famous and inspirational blind individuals and other specialists about a real wide variety of topics, providing you with real steps to achieve your dreams. Speaking Out for the Blind airs Wednesdays at 10.30 p.m. Eastern and replays throughout the day on Thursdays on ACB Radio Mainstream. Happy listening! California, Florida, Iowa, Texas, guide dog users, students, IT professionals, government employees. The American Council of the Blind has members in all 50 states and is actively engaged in a wide variety of activities. We advocate for the education, employment, and social inclusion of all blind and visually impaired Americans. We publish a monthly magazine. We hold an annual conference and convention and operate a multi-channel internet radio station. Check us out at acb.org. Together, we can do anything. ACB Radio! NASCAR champion Bobby Levani here with my brother Terry and my nephew Justin. You know, every sport has its essential safety gear. For racing, we wear helmets, fire retardant suits, and Nomex gloves. For fishing, waterfowl hunting, and boating, we wear life jackets. After an intense race, there's nothing more relaxing than bass fishing or a little duck hunting on the lake. But we're the first ones to tell you, on the track or on the water, accidents happen fast. In a crash, there's no time to put on a helmet. And when a boater capsizes or is thrown from the boat, there's rarely time to reach a stowed life jacket. But today's life jackets are lightweight and comfortable. Fishing or hunting, they don't get in your way. That's why you won't catch a Levani on the water without a life jacket. Don't let us catch you either. Remember, you're in command. Boat safely. This message brought to you by the United States Coast Guard. For more information on boating safety, visit www.uscgboating.org. This is Annie Lennox of Eurythmics, or RAD. Please don't drink and drive, and don't drive if someone else has been drinking. Thank you. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Hey, Jack, you got a sec? Yeah, sure, come on in. Yeah, I was wondering if you... Jack, your hair's on fire. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, I just need to finish this sales report, and then I'll probably, I don't know, let me lie down for a bit. But I'm, I'm sure it'll go away. But the flames are getting bigger. Sh shouldn't I... Your hair, there's so much fire. No, 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 I'll be fine. What can I help you with? Oh, dear. Well, at least we know the sprinkler system works. You wouldn't ignore this. So why ignore the signs of a stroke? If you or someone you know suddenly experiences numbness of the face, arm, or leg, or sudden trouble speaking, seeing, or walking, don't wait to get help. Call 911 right away, because time lost is brain lost. To find out more, visit www.strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE. This message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. 